it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 601 for July 8th, 2019. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. Luckily for you, this interview was pre-recorded a few weeks ago, so you will not have to listen to my croaky voice for the full interview. I'd like to welcome back to the show returning guest, Dr. Marianne Gary, known as Crusher of Dreams. She's also known as a professor of psychology at the University of Waikato, also professor of the at the New Zealand Institute of Security and Crime Science. That sounds like a bucket of fun, Marianne. Welcome back to the show. It is a bucket of fun, Allison. Thanks for letting me come back and crush more dreams. <laughs> well, this time we're going to talk about science. And replicability and, and a crisis in science that you've been uh, that you're really interested in, right? Right. Uh, it seem, a lot of people seem to be interested in this issue, science in general. Um, <laughs> I'm a fan of science. Yes, <laughs> that's good. Science for the win. I have to get that shirt. I was looking for that shirt that you were telling me about. Science doesn't care if you believe in it or not. <laughs> it's so exactly, great. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Well, there is a. There is a crisis in science, although actually some people say there isn't. I think that there is. Um, and it's not in science, but in the way science is happening or being done. So it it seems like every week or so, everyone reads another headline or here's another story about some discovery. And I'm saying that so I hope people hear air quotes as I read the word discovery. Uh, so you'll read a headline that says something like, uh, up to 25 cups of coffee a day are still safe for your heart. Yay! Or right. Wait, bacon, the new green food. Right, right, right. Because <laughs> we uh, all want that one yeah, to be true. Um, I, even I would, I say as a vegan. Uh, fish oil reduces whatever, you know, and makes this go away or improves this or whatever. Uh, adopting a certain kind of posture, like power posing, makes you feel more powerful. And, you know... These stories that we read about, they come from various places. Like you, you, you read about them on the web or in a newspaper. Remember newspapers? I you do. hear about them on the radio, whatever. Uh, but they come from uh, press releases that scientists in their universities send to the media. And scientists are involved in those press releases to varying degrees. Uh, they come from the journals that publish a specific paper and want to publicize those findings. So like the academic version of driving traffic, you know, uh, and so the problems that are created are not just about, you know, coffee or fish oil or standing in a powerful posture, because you can find the same kinds of screamingly uh, breathless headlines about the results of some clinical drug trial or how your brain responds to carbohydrates or coconut oil is like the messiah or it's not or it's poison or you know carbohydrates bad carbohydrates good you know sometimes you're told oh you know you're a nicer person when you hold a warm beverage than when you hold a cold beverage you know all this kind of <laughs> stuff right so then maybe a few years later if you're lucky then you learn that coffee thing no just kidding or the fish oil no we were wrong or the clinical drug tile not no didn't pan out and so this is the kind of problem. We see these things all the time where all they the tell time. you that eggs are bad for you and then a while later they go, no, eggs are actually great. Right. Uh, and actually, if you find the thing about the coffee, the 25 cups of coffee, if that doesn't pan out, let's just say it doesn't pan out. I'm pretty confident it's not a good thing, but whatever. Do you eat all things in moderation? Yeah. Yeah. I don't even know what that means, but okay. <laughs> My mother used to say it a lot. But I'm pretty sure, like... 
24 cups of coffee is not materially different from 26 cups of coffee. Anyway, so when someone actually does some kind of controlled trial, which they would never do to examine the effect of coffee, we're not going to hear about it because it's it's the really salacious kind of sexy headlines that drive the traffic. It's not the, oh, wait a minute, hang on, we were wrong kind of apology right. or correction. Unless it can be scientists wrong. You know, I mean, you'd have to really work the title yeah, to make I know. The, the research not boring. Yeah, right. Exactly, exactly. So you, what you've got is a whole bunch of systemic problems. And I think it really started to come to the attention of uh, a, a lot of people, not just scientists, but rippling beyond science in uh, when a guy named uh, John Unides, a medical researcher, started noticing this roller coaster ride in medicine, right? So that you'd see this Oh, this works, all of a sudden, wait a minute, it doesn't work. This works, this doesn't work. What What's going on? And, and he, he started noticing the kind of phenomenon that we're talking about. So he did some research, and I'll tell you about it in a second, but he wound up showing pretty clearly that this whole landscape, the whole structure that surrounds scientific research inadvertently rewards the wrong thing. So oh. it rewards surprising results. It, resort, it rewards uh, results that are going to have big financial payoffs for a university or a drug company. It rewards scientists who publish lots of high-profile papers in what we call top-tier marquee journals that everyone's heard of, like Science or Nature. Um, well, shouldn't and, you be rewarded for being able to publish in those things if they're they're hard to get into, right? They are really hard to get into, but just because they're hard to get into doesn't mean that everything they're publishing is always great. So, okay. So they are subject to the most extreme forms of peer review, but it's not necessarily the case that what's in there is really great. In fact, there's a case to be made, and I think there's some merit to it, that the, that the top journals in a field, whether it's my field or just science in general, because science and nature are like general science right. journals, right? The top journals are the ones that are going to publish the most surprising, interesting findings. Okay. And if you think about it, that's not really how science works most of the time, but I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. Right. But it is true that something like Science and Nature, the New England Journal of Medicine, what have you, these kinds of journals, because they're so prestigious, also have a big infrastructure that helps disseminate the results, publicize the results. These are the results that you wind up reading about in the New York Times or at BuzzFeed or whatever, and uh, – so these are the results that, that people are going to most know. So your doctor right. is going to most know papers that show up in those journals, not because he or she reads those journals, but because he or she reads the summaries of those journals and will preferentially, with some cause, say, oh, well, if I read it and, you know, if it was in this journal, it's probably likely to be good, except there's a kind of underlying systemic problem that means uh, you can be lured into thinking that if it was published in this journal, it's good when that's not necessarily true. But I'll, I'll, let's unpack that, right? Okay. If you step back and think about it, science is not supposed to be splashy, right? I mean, Star Trek is splashy. It's Star Wars is splashy. Okay. And that's kind of like uh, science, and it's like a translation of science, application of science. But the process of science is... Not splashy. I it's 
I once threw a big fistful of sodium in a beaker and it exploded and blew out a fume hood and that was kind of splashy. That's not really science. <laughs> well, but the the results of science certainly can be. I they mean, can we found sp- gravitation. We were able to measure gravitational waves. That's splashy. It is splashy, Actually, but that to didn't, nerd balls like us. <laughs> but that didn't come under. It didn't come out of nowhere, right? So right. most of science, by definition, is incremental. So the phrase that you stand on the shoulders of giants means really that you build on a previous literature. Right, you build on prior people's work, and so most of science, most of science is incremental. It's supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be, hey, what about blah? Let's right. just try this thing. So it is true that scientists progresses science progresses in an incremental way, and then there can be this sharp moment where somebody has a particular insight or some team has a particular insight. You know, or like Rosalind Franklin dis- discerning the structure of DNA. Okay, you know, and but that saying, didn't happen oh, overnight, right? It didn't happen out of, and it didn't happen out of nowhere, right? Okay, so, so you knew that the building blocks for it were coming, right? You could so there, see that maybe we were about to figure this out, not just boom. Yeah, there so it the, is. right. So there are some moments where there's a sharp, I guess you could call it an inflection point in the thinking of a scientific community, but most of the time it isn't like that. So most of science is incremental. You. You know the literature, you have a framework, you have a hypothesis, you make a prediction because it's the next logical step. And it isn't usually surprising, which doesn't mean it's not cool, but it's just that that's not how science works most of the time. Hmm. Okay. And so that's one thing. So it should tell us that when there's a whole bunch of surprising findings coming in out of some lab or group or in a particular journal, that's just weird. Oh, okay. Because you know, that much craziness shouldn't come out of one place? Or shouldn't be published all in one place? Or why not? Shouldn't be published all in one Well, because it just doesn't make sense that one group or one team or one lab is going to find a whole bunch of surprising findings that everyone would go, why, what? Mm-hmm. Like, you should be able to see a finding most of the time, read about a finding and say, that that makes sense, you know, given given what we know we about. Before. Yeah, given what we knew before. Uh, and so... That's the first thing. The second thing is science is described as, with cause, a self-correcting process. That is the point of peer review, right? So that's peer review. You get a bunch of your peers looking at your work and saying, well, hang on. Did you remember to control for this? Yeah. You you didn't control for this. You need to do this extra analysis. You need to run this extra experiment. You need, you know, what do you mean you're overclaiming here? 84 data points out of 100. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're overclaiming here. You're right. You're breaking random assignment, any any kind of thing like that. So science is supposed to be self correcting, but also the people who do science are just scientists are, are people. Scientists are people. This will come as a shock to a lot of people listening, but scientists are just people and people in general aren't, don't really, it's very hard sometimes to be like, thank you for correcting me. Yes, thank you for finding all those mistakes that I made. I really enjoyed that. The dominant experience, the modal experience. I'm open-minded that way, and you are. I know you are, and it's remarkable. Uh, So the absolute modal experience, if you're doing top-notch science, really, is rejection. Most of my work... the best thing. Yeah, most of my work gets rejected at least the first time around. Wow. In my entire career, I've had something accepted without changes 
once or twice wow. in my entire career. Okay. Right? So most huh. of the time it's rejection. And it's rejection on the basis of you're overclaiming, you need to control for this kind of thing. All the things I said before. And it's it's true. I don't I don't get those evaluations back, you know, the peer review reports back from the editor and say, Thank you. Complaints are like gifts. Thank you. Complaints <laughs> are like gifts. Thank you. Complaints <laughs> Nobody really does. I put it aside for a few days. Uh-huh. And then I come back and I think, okay, you had a point. And then, and then. At know, first, they're totally wrong, though, at right? Fir- yes. And they get smarter over time, which is pretty remarkable. That is interesting. But at first, they are totally wrong. <laughs> and and uh, then I become less right. And they, I don't know, get smarter. I don't know what happens. So, and, and you see, and, and it's hard but necessary for you to distance yourself from your work. Now, you eventually get to the point where you just go, okay, well, this is how it works. But you can imagine how if you have a splashy, cool finding, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying those aren't legit. I, I have produced splashy, cool findings. I think in retrospect, they make sense. And other people will say they make sense. Um, but if you have a splashy, cool finding, and then it turns out it's just not correct, like it happens because of maybe some bias in your approach that you didn't realize, you know, some statistical error, whatever it is. So like an artifact or a confound in, in a method, then I would have to go publicly and be like, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah, and nobody feels really, gr- you know, thank you. Compl- Here I am <laughs> self-correcting, <is> <laughs> right? So it's just well, hard. So you've gone down two different paths on sort of obliquely touching on the root causes. Uh, one is that splashy is rewarded, but the the other is you've you've talked about. There's peer reviews. Don't these splashy findings go through rigorous peer review? Well, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, they're supposed to. And mm-hmm. then you can think about how you can introduce bias into peer review. So sometimes, uh, sometimes. Peer reviewers, other scientists, get sucked into the story. Oh. Right? Huh. You just get sucked into the story. And the case is made that it's very hard to think of the counter, what, what we might call a counterfactual or the counterargument or, well, what about this? What about that? And that's why you don't have just one peer reviewer. You have a few. Uh, sometimes a paper is sent to one or more peer reviewers who actually, you know, they miss something, whereas another set of reviewers might have found the thing. Sometimes sometimes the paper is written in a way where all the relevant information that would have flagged something that a reviewer would have said, hang on a minute, isn't obvious. Oh. So it's so not... if you're a, really clever in your writing, you can just dodge well, that whole thing? I'm not... I want to be <laughs> clear here that, that most, of what's, what, most of what I'm talking about is not based on uh, fraud. It's not, okay. it's not scientific. It's not deliberate. Okay. Um, it's 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 human nature wanting it to be so. Uh, no, I think people think that they're making decisions th- that they're they're unwittingly introducing bias into an analysis, or uh, they think they're cleaning up their data when in fact they're unintentionally introducing something that's going to help and uh, inadvertently de- produce an effect under a statistical analysis. Um, you and I have talked on the side um, in other conversations about uh, how you set the criteria for your uh, for your testing ahead of time that you can, you can set it up where you you're actually figuring out the answer after you get the results versus predicting the answers. 
uh, that there's there's a difference in the way you set that up, whether that's a valid path or not? Oh, yeah. The entire, you know, uh, people have probably who listen to your show have probably heard about p-values. If they're not scientists themselves, they probably at least have heard of p-values, right, and hypothesis testing and statistical significance. I'll give you some other follow-ups, and then we can talk about the kind of contingencies, um, um, you know, the structure and, and what's going wrong. Wait, let me back up one little bit. So if you looked at these uh, articles and the sample that he had, and you said 40% were disproven later in some fashion or another, were the reports of disproving those as uh, well-published as the no, original finding? Ah, no, that's the missing that's, And that's okay. the problem, right? And so this is what I was saying earlier, that, you know, the 100 cups of coffee a day, that's all good, right? But when people are like, actually, no. I like how the number of cups of coffee is increasing. Yeah, I know. How it many is. cups have you had today? A lot. <laughs> because, oh, I didn't drink that other. There's a second one. There's a there. second nitro. Allison came back and said, uh, Starbucks didn't make you one giant nitro coffee. They made you two. So <laughs> not sure you should have it. And I went, no, give it to me. But I don't know where it is right now. You can tell I really We're need it, it, right? From you. Yeah, yeah, you're hiding yeah. it. It's being, yeah, it's probably better in the yard. Um, so. Yeah, that's the problem. So the interesting original finding produces a lot of traffic, right? And then for various reasons, you can think them all through because scientists are people, because journals want to go, Ugh, you know, and just because it's not as interesting for the media to cover. Unless it completely disproves something we didn't like. Like if, if they could come out with a result that said, no, bacon no. Bacon is a vegetable. Bacon is a vegetable. <laughs> right. Those are, I mean, the one about the eggs actually being okay for you, that one got a lot of, a lot of splash, right? Because we wanted that one to be true. I mean, yeah. I, I almost think that is that a factor? Uh, Might be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most people get their uh, keep up with science not by subscribing to journal articles, right? <laughs> Oddly, but enough. by by reading the Those internets. Few, right. Yeah, exactly. I saw it on Facebook. Well, well, then it's <laughs> then it's probably true. That's science. Yeah, right? that's science. Yeah. So, so that paper came out, and then some years later, a few years later, and I'll just just to show you, it's not just medicine, but this is another medicine paper. 2012, scientists followed up on 53 what they called landmark uh, studies of uh, preclinical cancer trials and found that only 11 of them held up. I put that in the show notes as number two. 11%, sorry. Oh, 11%. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. Were these bad results and only 11% were true or good results and only 11%? Well, I would say that's pretty bad. Well, I mean, if it was this thing didn't work, but it turned out it did. You said cancer results. I just didn't know what they Oh, the they followed were. up on what they called landmark cancer studies, which would have been cancer studies that people said, you know, preclinical trials that said, these are promising. Oh, oh These okay. look good. These okay. are great. So 53 studied landmark advances. Yeah. Advances. And okay. then, boom, 11%. So also not great. Yeah? Yeah. Um, and you would expect not all of them to, to pan out because they were preclinical and so some of them. But 11% seems like not a big Conversion rate, no, right? You know, no, uh-uh. so something's gone wrong there. Um, and then, just to show you that I'll eat my own dog food and tell you uh, about my own field. Uh-oh. In 2018, uh, there are some scientists who followed up on a big bunch of high-profile papers from psychology and economics, uh, papers that have been published in Nature or Science. So again, the big, important journals. Uh, I I have never had a paper in Nature or Science. I once got a paper to the second round of Nature, Mm. uh, and that was a huge 
victory for me and okay. you know internally but uh yeah so never have this is one of these saw off your arm journals <laughs> so if your arm to get into it journals. yeah absolutely oh, wow. yeah yeah not to get to the second round that's just like a thumb uh <laughs> so two-thirds of those findings reproduced you know, in general terms. So, wow. so better better than the landmark cancer research. Yeah. So, I, I mean, still- I, I don't want to say, like, we shouldn't take these in absolute terms that, that uh, you know, psychology has much less of a problem than, than medicine. It's just, it's it. you could generalize, but I wouldn't generalize too widely to say, well, this means 11% of what's happening in preclinical cancer trials is nonsense and two-thirds of psychology is, is great. I mean, it's just, there's no good... There's no good, oh, yeah, like error rate here, right? I mean, it's just you should expect that most things aren't going to pan out. You should actually you should expect that most things do pan out. So maybe the riskier the 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 study, like a preclinical trial that's described as purely speculative, you would expect, okay, maybe those don't pan out. But right. really, like 90% not panning out, that's a... That's unfortunate. Yeah, that's, that's a good word. Broken. For, yeah, yeah <laughs> something is broken, right? So th- that's right. So you can ask yourself, how did we get to this place where it looks like science is broken? And, and my answer is, I don't think science is broken, but the but the pressure and the contingencies, the reward and punishment system surrounding science... And who does the science? That's broken. Okay. And that distorts scientists away from the fundamental principles of doing science and doing it the way it's supposed to. So science is a self-correcting process, but only if you're allowed to correct the science. Right? <laughs> and only if it's easy to correct the science. Right. Yeah. Well, wait a minute. It doesn't have to be easy to correct the science. I mean, it can be hard to force somebody to replicate, get someone else to replicate their results. You, yeah. You do some experiments and you have to have somebody else replicate it. Right. But That's it should be easy. easy as in the sense that you won't get punished for doing it. So if you uh, have to say, actually, I did some follow-up work and it turns out that's not true, your job should then not be imperiled, right? Because, mm-hmm. because well, okay, what what are you known for? Oh, I'm known for this thing. Oh, that thing's not real. So now I'm not known for anything except also that I blew it. Right. I mean, that's that's how people would see it. I worked with a guy named Mario Bejas who who encouraged people to celebrate not doing stupid. Yeah, that's what he called it, where if you start down a path and you realize the path you're going down is wrong and you should stop, you shouldn't sit there going, well, we've already spent, you know, one point two million dollars of taxpayers money. We shouldn't keep going or we I guess we have to keep going. Some cost we, fallacy, yeah, right? Cost. Yeah. And, and he said, no, when somebody stops, you should celebrate that. You should have a party and reward them for not continuing stupid. Yeah. 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 It's a, I think it's a similar kind of idea. So the problem that what's going on now is that research is really expensive. It's really often high stakes, both uh, you know, at the level of the individual scientist and at the level of the institution – that if you do some research and you don't get the results that you expect, there are often real risks to the reputation of your team or to you, to your institution, multiple institutions, depending on how high profile it is, sometimes even to your job, right? I'll get to that in a second. But around the world, universities have been put under so much pressure almost to justify their existence, right? So to bring in external grants to fund what legislators used to fund and have over the past few decades have started not fund, you know, have begun funding less and less and less. So universities are put under pressure to make up that missing funding. So it is, 
And, and at the same time, university environments have become way more competitive. Hmm. Yeah. So there are a lot of, there are more people with uh, PhDs than there used to be. Hmm. And so the competitive, it's, a, it's what, what you might think of as a buyer's market at a university, right? So the pressure is just huge. And I don't know that people understand that you can be promoted or, or not, right? Turned down for promotion based on, among other things, the kinds of journals you publish in, how much external grant money you bring in, like from the National Science Foundation, the National Institutes of Health, funding agencies like that. In the United States, if you're at an early part of your career, so the first, let's say, six years of your career, you have the first six years of your career maximum to prove yourself as a good scientist. And you can lose your job. So it's called an up or out system. This is what tenure is. So a lot of people think tenure is, oh, I'm just, you know, you just have this job for life. I lasted life. long enough. Yeah, like a Supreme Court president. But it's, it's actually ruthless. Yeah, so you can spend six years in a position and just be dismissed. That's it. And right. so the criteria for you getting this tenured position, which is designed to afford you then the freedom to, to carry out. To, to Riskier things. Riskier maybe. things, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, one of the criteria, well, the criteria wind up being like there's on the face of it. Are you a good scientist? Right. Mm -hmm. Do you have a good reputation? Do you do good work? But all these contingencies mean that the wrong things get emphasized. So it's more like, what kind of journals have you published in? How many people have cited your paper? You know, who's going to cite your paper? People are going to cite a paper more if it's splashy and interesting, right? If it's in a high profile journal and have you brought in a lot of grant money? So what floats your application to the top? For a grant, when 7% of applications are successful, 7% of applications are successful, roughly, right? That's crazy. It's the ones that sound novel and exciting. Right. But hasn't that always been true? No. So they used to pick boring? No, but there wasn't. It's just just as the field gets... uh, This would be true of any field, I suppose. What makes something stand out? Like when people want to get attention... What, what gets you attention on the web? And I mean, it used to be there were 300 websites, right? You could mm-hmm. just go around and cycle through them over the course of a week. <laughs> and eventually you would, you know, you'd get to one or whatever it is. And now it's, then it started to be the ones that the would blink. And, the and then it was, of, yeah, yeah. Right. You'll never, you'll never, never believe what happens you'll never next. believe what happens next. Yeah. Right. You're right. That's what it's like. And this kind of sensationalism and breathlessness is, is the kind of things that I think, uh, Sometimes deliberately, but mostly unwittingly, I think uh, people might rely on or think is, oh, that's exciting. But I think it would it, it would seem to me that it would be just as exciting of a paper to disprove something that that had been splashy in the first place. You oh, know, yeah, I've I mean, done that. I mean, I've, I've, the obvious one being the egg one I keep bringing up. But I mean, if you if you find that you've uh, you've been able to disprove that they've actually found uh, class M planets in a certain orbit, you know, if you say, well, actually, uh, that's could be just as splashy, just as interesting. Yeah, but that's me. That's me finding out that some other really splashy thing isn't true. That's actually <laughs> right. That's not me. Find you know publicizing that last year. It turns out I was wrong, right? So that's much harder to do, and the incentives aren't there for that. In well, fact, how could there ever be incentives for that, though? Yeah. Well, I mean, right. do, you, do you foresee a system that could reward 
boring, methodical, correctly done research with with hypotheses set up ahead of time and non-splashy results, only incremental getting to the top of this, saw your arm off paper? Yeah. I mean, we have to have a system. Journal? I think that you can have some advances that increase the transparency, uh, transparency and openness of science at the level of the individual scientist or team, but also you need fixes at the institutional level. Those are going to be much, much harder. But at the level of the individual scientist, my colleague, uh, Samin Vizier at UC Davis has said, if you're a scientist, you have to keep asking yourself the question, how will I know if I'm wrong? Mm. That's science. And one of the best ways to answer that question is, as she says, to give your critics the ammunition they need to show you that you're wrong. And that is a very hard thing to do when the stakes are so high. Right? What, what if you could make your, your uh, queen of all science for, uh, for a week? What if you could change the rules what what to if? where – I'm sorry, when you will be. When I will be. Oh, sorry. As queen of yeah, all thank science. You. Thank uh, you. Uh, why don't you? Why haven't you already instituted I've a been program? Busy, but anyway, go ahead. Where, um, you know, ten percent of what you publish has to be things you found that you did wrong. <laughs> or yeah. you know it, what? It, you know you have for every every nine papers you submit about something new you found, you have to publish one that 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 destroys what you thought you knew before. Well. It, it's interesting because um, so one of the one of the start at one in a hundred. I think know, the something. big one of the big things that people can do is to think through as a scientist. You think through and you ba- uh, you file what I have sometimes described as a uh, a love letter to future me. Mm. So instead of getting data and thinking, well, now what what was my hypothesis again? What what how should I how should I analyze these data? You plan ahead of time. Here's what I'm going to do. Here's my hypothesis. Here are the analyses I'm going to do to answer the, you know, to address my predictions or answer my research question. And uh, then you file that away somewhere at an official repository. It's closed. Right? You're so not these, allowed to touch it. These things exist, <laughs> oh, right? Okay. And so when you then go to analyze your data and write up your paper. You unlock this, you follow the plan that you, you know, past you sent to future you, you follow that plan. If you need to deviate from the plan, you say, we deviated from the plan in the following ways, and because here's why. And then when you send that manuscript off to a journal, the whole package becomes available to the editor and the peer reviewers. This is... What? Oh, is that not normally the case? No, it's not normally oh, the case. Okay. Uh, it has in the past five-ish years or so, seven years-ish, so started increasingly to become the kinds of things that scientists have been urged to do. It's called open science. This particular thing I'm talking about, open science is the practice of being more transparent with your science. And it works completely counter in many ways to a lot of the contingencies. Share your data, share your materials, share your methods, share your analysis plan. Hmm. So that other people have the ammunition they can, uh, they need to show you that you're wrong. You, of course, have the ammunition that you need to show yourself that you're wrong. But the reason we have peer review is because We're everyone humans. wants to eat. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I want to believe what I think is... True. I mean, science is set up so that you, so that if you follow it closely, it reduces your biases, 
but mm-hmm. it can't get rid of them. So you really right. need to have other people. They bring their own biases. They don't have your biases necessarily. And then they, you know, come throw rocks at my paper. I just realized something. The My suggestion for your continued work as queen of science is was to find ways to reward people for celebrating being wrong. Yeah. Your suggestion is more towards not being wrong, publishing wrong in the first place. Well, which is maybe a, a well, slightly the, smarter goal. One of the yeah, but one of the things that you should be able to do, even if you like in my field, even if you have discovered some kind of effect or phenomena, you know, some phenomena of behavior, human behavior, that is a completely legitimate, real effect. Uh, that if you do enough experiments, y- you will find that by conventional statistical and analytical techniques, it looks to be not statistically significant on a particular experiment. So Mm -hmm. there's, let's not get back into the weenie details of (laughs) hypothesis testing, but, and so you conclude, uh, well, there's no good evidence to reject the idea that nothing's going on here. That's Mm -hmm. in, in general terms, that's what you would say. So if I did, if I did, let's say, 10 experiments, it should be the case that in in a lot of circumstances, uh, you think about flipping a coin. It's not quite the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. But sometimes you could get 10 heads in a row. Sometimes you'll get no heads. Sometimes you'll get a mix. It's not, you know, this 50-50 heads and tails thing, that's what we call a long-run probability. So mm-hmm. if you flip the coin for the rest of your life, it'll be 50-50. That's, that's the idea. But in a short run sample, five flips, 10 flips, you know. You could get surprising results. Yeah, yeah, except they're not surprising. They'll feel surprising because of Mm -hmm. our biases. Why, it should be 50-50. No, not really. And so it should be the same thing. Like when I do a bunch of experiments, it should be routine that maybe one of them doesn't. Mm, I'm just trying to. Well, I, I'm used to, to in experiments where you throw out your your three sigma results or your six sigma results. And yeah. Those are just th- that's you know somebody sneezed while I was measuring that, and that that one's not real. Yeah. Because so they tend to cluster around what the truth is. Because so so the idea is that you would publish all of them and show people that here's what's happening because I can call this noise, but it might not be noise. Oh, it might right, be right, my right. bias, right? So I'll publish the whole set. Okay. And journals. Uh, it, it you know it'll start to change. It's it's changing quite slowly because journals are more and more relying on things online. But it used to be, with some cause actually, that an editor would say, you know, trees are expensive, right? So mm-hmm. just can you just clean up this story, please? We don't need to know about all the times something didn't work. We need to know about the times it did work. Well, it's not about working or not working. Mm-hmm. This is working, right? <laughs> it, it's completely legitimate that sometimes you don't have the statistical evidence you need to say, I'm pretty confident that, you know, there's some kind of thing happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the only way you can show that is by showing all the data. Show the whole set of data, right. right. Because so, otherwise, you just don't know, like, what else have you been throwing out? Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. So uh, do regular scientists in all fields, please answer for all fields, not just your own, have the ability to suddenly go, I believe in open science, I'm going to use this, this new theory of, of sharing everything. Or are, would you expect that universities and research institutes would say, well, no, that's ours. Don't share that. Uh, yeah, well, uh, this is a tricky problem. <laughs> so 
There are some people who would be doing work with um, industry and don't have the ability to share data. Right. right. There right. are also people who do work with the military, don't have the ability to share data. In fact, sometimes they don't even have the – I've read method sections, you know, of uh, experiments where someone's working with special ops training and just mm-hmm. say, uh, here's a sentence about the method. Most of it is classified. Mm-hmm. Sorry. And then it's like, ugh. Well, it's it's not even to that level. I mean, most of the work that I did that, it, towards the later part of my career, it was about social media inside a large government contractor, mm-hmm. and I wasn't allowed to share anything. I was right. never allowed to talk to anybody about anything, and that was not even – I mean, you know, it wasn't for the vast majority. It had nothing to do with anything classified. But it was like, no, it might be. Right. You know? Yeah, well, that's but right. But competitive, so- I, I, I would be worried about, you know, a university, okay, we got this grant. This is our grant. We got this money. This is our research. Oh. We don't want to share it. Well, taxpayer-funded research, for the most part, should be made publicly uh, yes. available, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the UK, there is now a, a rule that uh, if you get funding from certain funding bodies, that you that actually um, even the published research, the published paper has to be publicly available to anybody. Oh, right? okay. okay. So there's a, yeah. Um, so you can see publicly generated data as in some states, some places you might call that work product or some places it might come under transparency, sunshine laws or what have you. Uh, in some places, uh, government data is publicly available. Um, in some other places, government data is not publicly available because it could be thought to embarrass the government, for instance. Well, I've always liked that uh, everything from NASA has to be uh, op- has to be open to everybody. And by the way, I think all the BBC stuff should be open to us because in the United States, because uh, the British people get to see all the cool NASA imagery. That, that's just that's just one of my things, though. Oh, but you don't pay the TV license. Yeah, but they don't pay for NASA. See. You're not buying it, huh? <laughs> I think you should be allowed to pay the subscription at the BBC and get the... Why not? Just do it like an app. There you go. There right? you go. So um, do you think that this is a movement that is going to help and you think we're we're getting there? Oh, change is hard. <laughs> uh, it's amazing to me how people say things like, well, filing this... This uh, protocol, this pre-registering your plan, your analyses and all that, it's amazing to me that some people say this is going to stifle creativity and exploration. And, and I just think, why? Why Why would it? Like, why would it? Because if you want to say something like, well, we didn't plan to do this things, if you go and you look at the the analysis plan, we didn't plan on doing this kind of thing. And now I'm going to generate a hypothesis for future research, but I'm just going to see if there's any preliminary evidence that suggests that there might be something worth following up. That's fine. You just flag it. That's all, right? Right, right. So, but some people, and people that I would otherwise think, you should really understand this, are just violently opposed to this kind of thing. And I don't, I don't, I don't understand why. So I think that we are at a bifurcation point in a lot of science. And I think that we're going to see that uh, I think s- the f- scientists themselves have some difficult choices to make. But I think as well the institutions that 
help science flourish or make science continue to be problematic mm-hmm. uh, are going to have to start changing the way they do things. You know, change the the system of incentives and uh, rewards and and punishers. Because otherwise, like, we don't want to get to a point where people say, as I have read and had people tell me, science is broken, science is voodoo, and now we're in this era where it's like, well, that's your opinion, or that's that's just one, <laughs> science is one right. way of knowing. It could be, it could be the, getting towards that. Yeah, yeah because yeah. if you don't have any way, if science doesn't have any way of correcting itself easily, if the incentives are skewed, uh, then, yeah, if someone just says, well, I'm just going to base my next action Beliefs. On a belief or a hunch or my gut or whatever, then, right. you know, then we're in trouble. They shouldn't be equivalent. I did want to, uh, before we close out, I wanted to bring up one other thing. Um, you talked about uh, having the open science and the, the access to these journals or uh, to journal papers. Um, I want to call out an app called Open Access Helper. It's in the iOS App Store and it is written by Nosilla Castaway, Klaus Wolf. Right. It's a good app. Yeah, so you go. You're looking for a paper. You find it, and it's behind a paywall. If you you the Open Access Helper um, installs a little plugin, um, and you can then click a button, and it will allow you to go look for that journal or that paper in an Open Access environment. And if you uh, and if it's available, it will find it. It's not like it's going to go find bootleg versions or yeah, anything right, like that. Right. But but if it is right. in Open Access, to be able to get it. Now I'm confusing myself. This may also be a Mac app. I'm trying to remember because I thought I remembered it being part of Safari, but I think it might be. I think it's just iOS. Anyway, I th- I've only used it on iOS. Okay, so go look for it on iOS. It's called Open Access Helper, and it's an orange logo with a green word helper and a little lock. It's cool. Well, this, this has been really fun. I wanted to. Uh, is it fun? Thank you. Yeah. It's fun to think yeah. About it's, well, it's depressing. It's but, depressing. But it's it's but, depressing fun, Allison. Well, they don't call you crush your dreams for nothing, Marianne. <laughs> we, That's uh, Queen. <laughs> queen. Queen Crusher of Dreams. Thank you. <laughs> of all science. Hey, I need. Can I just be really shallow? Yes. <laughs> we need to get me some Twitter followers. I'm like 45 people away. Oh, from yeah. I'm hitting my. Target 1000. All right. So your Twitter name is Dr. Lamb Chops. D-R. Yeah. Wait, no. Dr. Lamb Chop. Chop. D-R-L-A-M-B-C-H-O-P. That's right. All right. The Nocilla Castaways will make this happen. That would be so great. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Chit Chat Across the Pond. Did you notice there weren't any ads in the show? That's because this show is not ad supported. It's supported by you. If you learned something, or maybe you were just entertained consider contributing to the Podfeet podcast. You can do that by going over to podfeet.com and look for the big red button that says support the show. When you click that button, you're going to find different ways to contribute. If you like to do a one-time donation, you can click the PayPal button. If you want to make a recurring contribution, click the weekly Patreon button. Or another way to contribute is to record a listener contribution. It's a great way to help the Nocilla Castaways learn from you. If you want to contact me for any reason, you can email me at allison at podfeet.com and you can follow me on Twitter at podfeet. Maybe you want to talk to other Nocilla castaways. There's two great places to do that. You can do that in our Slack group at podfeet.com slash Slack, or you can join our Facebook group at podfeet.com slash Facebook. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.